Welcome to Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. Today we begin a new study called The Gospel According to Mark. We're addressing a somewhat sensitive topic, the issue of divorce. In recent years, divorce has become much more socially acceptable. But what does Jesus have to say about the subject? Let's turn to Scripture. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Thanks be to God for his word. We pray together before we look at this passage. Father, We thank you this morning that the Holy Spirit is the one who illumines the printed page to us, who takes the blinders off our eyes, who conducts that divine dialogue with our souls where we're able to look beyond and listen beyond the voice of a mere man and hear from you. So open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your Word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the course of pastoral ministry over a number of years, I have on more than one occasion listened as a man has sat with me and spoken along these lines. Quotes, I must divorce my wife because I have fallen in love with another woman and we are perfect for each other. I made a mistake in marrying my present wife. I am so much in love with this other woman, it must be right. To which I reply, on the contrary, it must be wrong, because you already have a wife. In returning to our studies in the Gospel of Mark, we discover in this section that Jesus is fielding a question regarding divorce— and he is providing instruction concerning the nature of marriage. And we come to these verses at a point in our nation's history when the institution of marriage is rejected by many and is in the process of being re-engineered by some. It is routinely regarded in its traditional historical form as nothing more than an outdated, outmoded, impractical idea. 
In fact, on a website yesterday when I was just checking these things out, I came across a for-and-against website, and one of the for-and-against uh, uh, positions that was established was simply this, uh, marriage is an outmoded, outdated, impractical idea. Uh, vote for or against uh, this motion. And uh, apparently uh, there were significant numbers who were happy to vote marriage completely off the page. Now, there's nothing new in this. Here we are at this point in time. Those of us who have lived for any length of time, particularly those of us who are part of the baby boomers, can recognize that the seeds of much that uh, we now experience in terms of the ugly fruit of the disruption of the marriage bonds uh, has its foundation uh, much deeper than the 60s, but the 60s gave expression to it. Part of my summer reading has been a book by Francis Beckett entitled, What Did the Baby Boomers Ever Do for Us? And the subtitle is, Why the Children of the Sixties Lived the Dream and Failed the Future. Lived the dream and failed the future. What he's actually suggesting is that all of those great liberal revolutionary concepts that mark the sixties generation have now been swallowed up as a result of the hippies becoming conservative both politically and economically, and in some cases socially. And so he says they have actually failed the future, because although they lived the dream, uh, the dream has died somewhere along the way. Uh, That would not be my thesis. I haven't completed the book yet, but I would say that many of the seeds of the sixties are about us, and that the ideas and the concepts that were so quickly and freely espoused and embraced at that time uh, are are around us in their ugly form. I remember fairly clearly, and I keep notes fairly accurately, and so I can quote to you from Jill Tweedy writing in The Guardian in the mid-60s, because I tore it out and kept it, and uh, it was so revolutionary to me that I It's lodged in my mind. I don't need to go find it in my files. She wrote an article in The Guardian entitled, When Marriage is Just a Cage. When Marriage is Just a Cage. And in the course of that, she concluded by saying, So I hope now that it will be outside the bonds of Christian marriage that we are able to discover for the first time what true love is all about. In other words, if we can just get beyond all of this archaic stuff, all of this restrictive stuff, then in our discoveries of freedom and of free love and so on, then we will be able to make great gains. Now, she was writing at a time when much of the contemporary hymnody, uh, the secular hymnody, was reinforcing the same kind of thing. And some of you will have been a fan, as I was, of Johnny Mitchell— And you will perhaps recall Johnny Mitchell's song, My Old Man, who was a walker in the park and a dancer in the dark, who, when he went away, wrote Johnny Mitchell, but when you're gone, me and those lonely blues collide, the bed's too big, the frying pan's too wide. Poetry like that just goes in my head and never goes away. (laughs) But four times her refrain came. Did you remember the refrain? We don't need no piece of paper from the city hall keeping us tied and true. We don't need this stuff. Marriage is simply the legitimization 
of what we've chosen to do. And we'll be able to get by without any of that. We don't need that. So, that period of time, when you fast forward 50 years or so, you discover where we are today. And when we conduct weddings here at Parkside, uh, almost without exception, in our preamble to the wedding service, we point out to all who have gathered that marriage, which is ordained by God, is not to be entered upon lightly or carelessly, but thoughtfully, with reverence for God, with due consideration of the purposes for which it was established by God. And then we articulate three of those purposes. One, the companionship that husband and wife ought to give to each other through life. Two, uh, the gift of children from God to be brought up and trained to love and obey God. And three, the welfare of human society, which can be strong and happy only when the marriage bond is held in honor. That, then, is not simply a personal issue, but it is a cultural issue. It is a societal issue. When a culture turns its back on the Creator's design, there are moral, psychological, social, spiritual implications that inevitably follow. I was going to bring something here just as an illustration for some of the young people that are here with us this morning because of the Sunday school, and I thought, no, don't do it because you'll get yourself so tied up in knots that the benefit will be outweighed by how pathetic you are at it. But what I was going to bring was a piece of, uh, a piece of equipment and the, um, and the instruction manual. And I was going to take a moment to point out how if you pay attention to the instruction manual, then you'll be able to you know, construct the thing accordingly, and if you don't, you'll get yourself in trouble. But then I realized I'll get myself in trouble either way, and so the illustration will break down. But it doesn't break down here. When we turn our back on God's creative purposes, then there are ramifications. And I would defy anybody, anybody, to take the newspapers of this weekend, to take the magazines that are offered to us this week, to take the material that is up on the web, and be unwilling to acknowledge that there is a societal chaos in our culture that is in large measure directly tied to the unwillingness of men and women to do what God says. And so what we have in this instruction in Mark 10 is another opportunity for us to put into practice the exhortation of Paul at the beginning of Romans 12, when after he has laid down the basis of freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ, the nature of salvation, and so on, he then says, so this is how you should live in light of that. And you remember, he says, and I don't want you to allow the world around you to squeeze you into its own mold, but I want you instead to have your minds transformed, transformed in thinking. Now, so often those verses at the beginning of Romans 12 have been taught in such a way as to suggest that what the Christian is to do is somehow or another live in another worldly dimension. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is, is, is really saying that the, that the Christian is to be marked by a holy worldliness. That is H-O-L-Y. There is a paradox in that, isn't there? So that our engagement in the routine of life is to be marked by holiness, 
by the fact that we are not as we once were. We have been set apart. We have been changed. We are different. And as a result of that difference, everything is viewed from a different perspective. That's why we love the quote from C.S. Lewis, isn't it? We quote it all the time. I believe in Christianity, said C.S. Lewis, as I believe in the rising of the sun, not simply because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. So that the Christian perspective on the world, on science, on the arts, and here in this instance, on marriage itself, is constrained in a vastly different way than that which is represented in a culture that has rejected the Maker's instructions. Now, with all that by way of introduction, let us come to the first verse of chapter 10, and notice that here we are just some 52 verses away from Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Mark tells us that the ministry of Jesus in Galilee is now over. He has moved into the region of Judea, across the Jordan, and once again we discover that crowds of people came to him. Crowds of people came to him. They didn't come just in dribs and drabs. He often went to the individuals, but it seems as though people came not so much as individuals as they came in vast numbers. And one of the lovely things in reading the Gospels is to see the way in which people were attracted to Christ. They were attracted to the fact that he spoke with clarity, that he spoke in a way that was understandable, that was wonderfully clear, that his talks were not like some of the boring talks of the religious leaders, that it was not mumbo-jumbo, that he didn't pull his punches, that he said things that were so clear, so compelling. And so many times the Pharisees were muttering under their breath about what he was doing, but the crowds were coming, and here we're told that they came to him and he taught them. He taught them. Now, those of us who've been reading Mark know that from the very beginning he was teaching them. Yes, there were signs that accompanied his teaching. He healed the sick and so on. But you remember, after that first amazing encounter with the demonic people and with those who were sick, when the disciples had come to him and said, Jesus, everybody's looking for you now, he'd said, we've got to leave here and go somewhere else. They must have thought that was very strange, but he said, I need to go somewhere else to teach the gospel because that is why I have come. In other words, he says, I didn't come to do miracles. These miracles are merely a sign of the kingdom of God and who I am. And remember what he had said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Very straightforward. The people who knew their Old Testament understood what he was saying. In other words, I haven't appeared out of nowhere, he says. I am now here in the economy, in the unfolding plan of God. The prophets have spoken of the Messiah who was to come, and here I am. I'm not here just to tickle your ears, to encourage you to become little religious people. I am here to say to you, you need to do an about turn. For that's what repentance is. By nature, you're going your own way. By nature, you're making your own plans. By nature, you're redesigning your own agendas. Now, I'm asking you to have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. I'm asking you to believe the good news that is embodied in me and one and another, men and women, then and now and today and here at Parkside, are hearing that message, understanding who the Messiah is, returning 
from all that represents of our sinful rebellion and disinterest in him, and are turning to believe this glorious good news, that there is forgiveness in him, that there is freedom in him, that there is a future in him, and so on. Well, in verse 1, the crowd is coming to him, and in verse 2, the Pharisees are coming for him. They're coming for him. Some Pharisees came and tested him. In other words, they weren't coming to do simply investigation. They were coming to see if they could catch him off guard. They were trying to catch him out. Now, let me just point out to you that this is routine on the part of these individuals. You turn back a couple of pages to the 11th verse of chapter 8, and there you discover the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And here's the word again, to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven, to test him. Uh, that little verb there, to test, uh, is an interesting verse. Uh, the first time we read it in Mark's gospel, actually, is in the 13th verse of chapter 1. And Jesus was in the desert for 40 days being tempted or tested by Satan. It's the same, it's the same word. Same word. When you go to chapter 12, and I'll just point this out. We need belabor this, but chapter 12 and verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. Notice, to catch him in his words. To catch him in his words. There's all the difference between the person who comes and asks you a question, if you're a, if you're a teacher in school, who asks you a question because they have a genuine inquiry and they need to discover something, and the person who's just a complete pain in the neck, they're just trying to take up your time or prove that you're not as clever a teacher as you thought you were. That's the latter approach, the approach of the Pharisees. That's why in verse 15 of chapter 12, it says that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Why are you trying to trap me? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it is the record of religious people using the Word of God in attempt to undermine the identity and the work of the Son of God. Did you get that? Religious people using the Word of God to, if they could, undermine the very work of the Son of God. Not a lot has changed, has it? People say to him, well, Mr. So-and-so is a very religious person. You know, he, he refers to the Bible all the time. I don't doubt it for a minute. But to what end? To what end is the Bible being employed? Is it being employed in order to set forward who Jesus is and what he's done, the truths of his resurrection, the reality of his return, the nature of his atonement? Or is Mr. Religious or Mrs. Religious or Miss Religious simply seeking to bring the Bible to bear upon us in such a way that they might tempt and test and undermine and seek to disprove that which is there clearly in its pages? Because remember, and that's why I took you to chapter 1 of Mark, remember that the roots of this activity lie with the evil one himself. And in Matthew's gospel, you, where you have the record of the testing or the tempting of Jesus in the wilderness, when you read it for your leisure in chapter 4 of Matthew, you discover that the evil one is doing exactly that. He uses the Bible, he uses the Word of God to try and trip up the Son of God. Loved ones, don't be so naive as to think that just because somebody makes reference to the Bible, that there is an orthodoxy about that. The Bible speaks of those who rest the Scriptures 
to their own destruction. And these Pharisees come now to Jesus, not because they have an honest inquiry about which they long for an answer, but because they have an agenda of their own which they're seeking to establish. And their testing of Jesus comes by way of a specific question. And the question is recorded for us at the end of verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's a pretty straightforward question, isn't it? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3. Let me ask you a question, he says. What did Moses command you? What does it say in the Old Testament? What did the prophet Moses have to say about this? Well, verse 4, they reply, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But what we need to understand is that Moses didn't institute that process in order to make it easy to be divorced. But he instituted that process in order to regularize and to control the ensuing chaos which was resulting from the fact that the religious individuals were beginning to say, if my wife burns the toast, I can divorce her. If she fails to do this in the way that I want, I can divorce her. And that's why Jesus goes on to point out that it was on account of the hardness of the people's hearts that Moses wrote the law. Because they had hardened hearts to God's purposes and plans, because they were unprepared to accept the nature of love within the framework of the covenant of marriage that God had intended, because their primary interest, apparently, was in seeing how far they could go and yet still remain within the letter of the law, Moses responded in that way. challenging and helpful start to our series called The Gospel According to Mark. Alistair Begg will continue on the topic of divorce over the next few days, drawing out some important biblical instruction. So be sure to join us throughout the week. At Truth For Life, we are committed to teaching the Bible with straightforward clarity. We know God's Word is relevant, and we believe it's powerful. As we walk through sensitive passages like the one we've studied today, we trust that God will move through the teaching of His Word to strengthen individuals and families and church communities. But what exactly does a strong church look like? Well, that's the topic of a book we're making available today. The book is titled The Heart of the Church. It's written by pastor and author Joe Thorne, and he provides a concise overview of the attributes and core beliefs of a healthy Christ-centered church. And he explains how congregations can avoid becoming distracted over issues that are of secondary importance. Request your copy of The Heart of the Church by Pastor Joe Thorne to learn how to ensure that the gospel... Bible doctrine and God's work in salvation are the most important truths for your church family. This book comes with our thanks when you donate to support the Bible teaching you hear on Truth For Life or when you commit to regular monthly support. Sign up to become a Truth Partner today or give a one-time donation at truthforlife.org. Don't forget to request your copy of The Heart of the Church. 
If you'd prefer to give over the phone, call us at 888-588-7884. I'm Bob Lapine. Join us tomorrow as we continue our study of divorce. Alistair will be calling us back to a biblical understanding of marriage and will be offering encouragement for us to stay the course. The Bible teaching of Alistair Begg is furnished by Truth For Life. Where the learning is for living.